two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to the fourth episode of The Flip Side, our new podcast series. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the Global Head of Research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Michael Gapin, our Chief U.S. Economist. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jeff. In this episode, we're going to debate whether higher interest rates on U.S. Treasuries, and particularly the flat yield curve, are warning signs of an upcoming recession and a potential catalyst for significant market volatility. This might sound like a pretty dry subject, but higher yields could have wide-ranging impacts on the broader economy and on markets, touching everything from the stock market to the labor market. I'm going to argue that history tells us that the recent moves in the Treasury market are troubling, both for the economy and for the stock market. And I think it's clear that the Treasury market has played a role in the broader market volatility that we've experienced over the past several weeks. So history is certainly a good place to start, Jeff. I'm just not sure that the historical context is as relevant today as one might think. So the the U.S. economy of the 1970s and the 1980s is very different than the one we have today. And I'm going to argue that's in part due to the successes that the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world have had in getting inflation under control and in part due to the recent financial crisis. If so, then the backup in Treasury yields that we've seen and the flattening of the yield curve may not suggest anything overly concerning. I take a position that variables that have signaled recessions in the past, like the inverted yield curve you mentioned, may not be fully adequate guides in isolation this time around, and I think we need to take a broader view. All right, before we jump into the debate, let's provide some context for what has happened lately in the market for U.S. Treasury securities. First of all, interest rates on U.S. Treasuries of all maturities have risen, primarily because the U.S. economy is doing well, which means that the investors expect the Federal Reserve, to continue to move interest rates higher. Obviously, one of the roles of the Federal Reserve is to lean against the wind. They reduce interest rates to support a weak economy, and they raise interest rates to prevent a strong economy from overheating, and it's that latter case that we're dealing with now. Some of the rise in Treasury yields may also be due to the recent tax cut, which raised the size of the deficit in the U.S., and it increased the amount that the U.S. government needs to borrow, which could also obviously put pressure upwards on yields. So let's take the 10-year U.S. Treasury note as an example. Just before the U.S. presidential election in late 2016, the 10-year U.S. Treasury note had an interest rate of about 1.8%, close to historic lows. It's now over 3.1%, which is a meaningful move higher. That's right. And and the move in the yield on the two-year Treasury note has been even more dramatic. So before the election, Two-year Treasury notes paid an interest rate below 1%. Now they yield almost 3%, so nearly identical to the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note that that you mentioned. Yields on bonds with shorter maturities, like the two-year Treasury note, move almost entirely because of expectations around Federal Reserve interest rate policy. As the economy strengthened and as investors came to realize more Fed interest rate increases were in store, they began to ask for and require higher return to lock up their investment for two years. The Fed's policy rate, which we refer to as the the federal funds rate, is at about two and a quarter percent presently after hovering near zero between 2009 and 2015. 
At present, investors are expecting two, maybe three additional rate increases from here by the end of 2019, which would leave the funds rate near 3%, about where that two-year Treasury note is trading today. We in the Barclays U.S. Economics Research Team may think it will even go a little higher than that before all is said and done, but that's what markets are thinking right now. Now, because the yield on the two-year Treasury note has moved so much, we are now close to having a flat yield curve, which is when interest rates are more or less the same across a range of maturities of U.S. Treasury securities. That's not normal. Typically, bonds with longer maturities actually pay a higher interest rate than those with shorter maturities. Correct. So investors usually need to get paid more to tie up their money for longer. And we see lots of examples of this. Think of your bank deposit versus a certificate of deposit or CD. You can access your bank deposit at any time, but in exchange for this privilege, you earn less interest than you would on a one-year or a two-year CD. In other words, since you're required to keep your money in the CD for a period of time without the ability to withdraw your funds, you need to be compensated for that, and you're compensated for it in the form of additional return. The same holds true for U.S. government securities. A 10-year U.S. security should pay more than a two-year U.S. Treasury note because you lock your money up for so much longer. With that context, let's get into the debate. I do think that the recent moves are a warning sign. The yield curve is almost flat, and we're expecting one more interest rate increase this year out of the Fed and four more hikes next year. If that proves accurate, it is very possible that the curve actually inverts. That's a fairly rare situation where the interest rate on the two-year U.S. Treasury note would actually be higher than the interest rate on the 10-year Treasury note. Historically, that's a very negative sign for the economy. And let me give you some examples. The last time that the yield curve inverted was in 2006 and 2007, just before the global financial crisis. The time before that was in 2000, just before the dot-com bubble burst. You can go back further in time, too. The recessions of the late 70s and early 1980s, and in the early 1990s around the savings and loan crisis, were both preceded by inverted yield curves. So there were a few times in the mid-1990s when the yield curve flattened, but the economy didn't slow. In fact, the economy accelerated as the internet and technology boom gathered steam. Yes, Mike, but it didn't actually invert. Since the 1970s, an inverted curve has actually never had a false positive whereby it signaled a problem in the economy, but nothing actually developed. And I don't think it's really just a statistical anomaly. There's a reason why interest rates are such a powerful signal of looming recessions. Where the yield on the two-year U.S. Treasury note reflects the average interest rate expected from the Federal Reserve over a fairly short period of time, like you mentioned, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note incorporates First of all, the yield that we're expecting over the next 10 years, so it's a much longer time horizon, but also an estimate of how investors will respond to economic conditions. If investors believe that a recession is coming, then the yields on the 10-year Treasury note are likely to fall for two reasons. First, investors will expect future rate cuts from the Fed, but they will also expect that declining economic conditions would push investors to prefer safe assets like treasury securities and force yields down further. I understand your argument and I I understand the historical context, but as an economist, I'm just not comfortable relying exclusively on on market signals alone to forecast a recession. And we would say an inverted yield curve may exhibit correlation with recessions, but that's different than saying 
they cause recessions. Recessions have catalysts. Something has to go wrong in the real economy to trigger a widespread and broad-based slowdown in the economy or outright decline in economic activity. So look through those historical examples that you mentioned. In 2006, 2007, it was the housing and financial crisis. At the turn of the 2000s, it was the dot-com bubble. And in the 80s and 90s, it was the savings and loan debacle. All of these events are triggers that have ultimately slowed down real economic activity. All right, I get that. But it is still possible that higher interest rates alone could cause a recession. We saw that when significant rate hikes by the Federal Reserve under Paul Volcker caused the recession in the early 1980s in an effort by the Fed to control severe inflation. Now, at the levels we're talking about today, a flatter yield curve and higher yields by themselves probably won't do as much damage. But if they're paired with a bunch of other potential risks that we see out there, which include protectionist trade policies, the exit of the UK from the European Union, spillovers from volatility in emerging markets, and potentially a faster than anticipated slowdown in China, which is clearly linked to the trade policies, a combination of these may ignite the sparks of a recession. Except that we've stress tested each of those risks, and we don't think that they're severe enough to be more than a minor drag for the U.S. economy right now. One main reason is that sizable fiscal stimulus, the tax cut, and the budget deal, they've given the economy a lot of internal momentum. Stimulus acts as a shock absorber when it comes to the risks that you're mentioning. And it's true that the U.S. is still largely a closed economy. What happens at home tends to be much more important for economic outcomes than what happens abroad. So if I could take a step back and and look at the bigger picture, I have an objection to relying too heavily on one signal from the Treasury market. I think an inverted yield curve just doesn't mean the same thing today that it did in the past. You're saying that inverted yield curve isn't concerning? I'm not sure that I agree with that. Well, I'm arguing that the yield curve may have to invert by a lot more than it used to before we get worried. When we discuss the reasons why investors usually demand higher interest rates when buying longer dated securities, we left one important reason out, and that's the risk of materially higher or more variable inflation. If you buy a bond with a 10-year maturity and a fixed coupon payment, and then the rate of inflation ramps up, you're going to lose money. You've locked in an interest rate that doesn't account for the unexpected rise in the rate of inflation. Just think how damaging 1970s-style inflation was for bondholders who weren't expecting it. Imagine if you had purchased a 10-year U.S. Treasury note in 1971, right before inflation accelerated and reached 14% per year by 1980. You would have lost a lot on your investment. Yeah, I can guess where you're going with this, Mike. Inflation rose rapidly in the 1960s and 1970s, and since then, it has fallen steadily. Since the end of the Great Recession in the U.S., inflation has been surprisingly low for years, really, despite all sorts of dire warnings, particularly during the QE era when the Fed securities holdings and the money supply grew by trillions of dollars. So put differently, the, the risk of higher inflation is a major contributor to term premium, which is the extra yield that the 10-year U.S. Treasury note pays above and beyond what's necessary to compensate for expected rate hikes out of the Fed. The Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world have done such a great job at bringing inflation under control and keeping it low and stable that investors just aren't worried about major inflation spikes. This reduces the yields on long-dated treasuries like the 10-year note and the 30-year bond substantially, so the curve is just naturally flatter today. For context, 
We estimate the term premium on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, and it's about zero today compared to around a half of 1% or 50 basis points in 2006 and two percentage points in 1990. The difference between today and previous decades is quite substantial. And when you start with a flatter curve, it's just easier to invert. But that doesn't mean that it's any easier to tip the economy into a recession. It just means the curve has to invert by more before the signal really kicks in. Well, on the one hand, as you point out, the term premium had declined already by 2006. So the same argument you're making now, you could have largely made back then. But yet, the signal worked before the global financial crisis. So it's possible that investors expect a less volatile inflation backdrop implies fewer swings in Federal Reserve policy, such that the prospect of any future cuts in interest rates still have the same general implications for the economy. But on the other hand, I have to grant you that there really isn't a sign of weakness in the U.S. economy that we can find right now. The 3.5% growth number for the third quarter that was recently released surprised to the upside. Yes, it was a very solid report. I would expect fiscal stimulus to keep growth elevated in the U.S., although maybe not quite at the same pace that we've seen recently. The area of the economy that I tend to focus on when we think about recession risk is the labor market. About 70% of U.S. economic activity is derived from household spending, and households tend to spend when employment prospects are bright. They also tend to reduce their spending when labor markets are weak and people are afraid of losing their job. We've been averaging about 185,000 jobs a month during the current expansion. If you're looking for an indicator to suggest when investors should begin to worry about a downturn and invert the yield curve, I would suggest employment growth slowing down to around 125,000, maybe 135,000 a month. That's when I would worry that the economy is losing momentum. All right. So even if the fundamentals of the economy are strong, equity markets have been incredibly volatile over the past several weeks. We've now given up most of the gains for the year. And within that period, it hasn't just been a one-way trade downwards. There have been huge swings up and down. I think it's pretty clear that the changes in the Treasury market are directly contributing to this volatility. Even if the underlying economy isn't showing any cracks, higher rates and a flatter curve make markets more sensitive to any negative developments. Swings in market confidence can have sizable indirect effects on the economy. So we may have stress-tested the implications of trade, Brexit, the political developments in Italy, etc. But equity markets are reacting more to these developments now that interest rates have moved higher. Interest rates are probably exacerbating the volatility in financial markets. I uh, can't deny that. I think it is driven by the fact that the Fed is letting its asset portfolio run off. So if you recall that the Fed purchased about $3.5 trillion in Treasury and mortgage-backed securities in response to the financial crisis, the Fed essentially took these securities out of the market, securities which were in high demand given their relative safety and high liquidity, and now their relative scarcity was helping to push their yield lower. Now the Fed is allowing its holdings of securities to decline which means financial markets have to absorb a lot more U.S. Treasury issuance than before at a time when interest rates have already moved higher. Just like the Fed's asset purchases reduced volatility, it's very possible that letting the portfolio decline adds to volatility. Well, Mike, that's an interesting indirect link between interest rates and what's happening in, in markets. But I also think that there are direct links between interest rates and market volatility. So I'll give one example as 
interest rates in the U.S. rise relative to yields in other parts of the world, the U.S. dollar tends to gain in value against other currencies. This is usually a bad mix for emerging markets, and emerging market currencies have been particularly vulnerable, which was the subject of our previous episode of The Flipside. Now, volatility in emerging markets has contributed to concerns in the U.S. and in Europe. I also want to tie this back to the earlier points about the strength of the U.S. economy. At some point, the type of volatility we're experiencing right now in financial markets does have an effect on the real economy. The tail eventually wags the dog, so to speak. There are only so many days that we could be up and down over 3% on the S&P 500 before all this volatility starts to act as a drag on the economy. Sure. Changes in confidence do matter, and I would say we need to be watchful for signs the business sector is postponing its investment and hiring plans. This type of thing has happened in the past. It happened in the early part of the recovery from the global financial crisis, when financial markets became concerned about debt sustainability in Europe and the future of the European Union. U.S. activity just stalled out as firms postponed hiring and spending plans. But I think we're a long way from that, in part because the economy entered this period of volatility with so much positive momentum. Well, there are also wealth effects to watch out for. As you mentioned, the U.S. economy is very consumer-driven, and a negative shock to financial wealth from lower equity prices could cut against the support for consumption that's coming from a strong labor market and the recent tax cuts. Again, I think that's fair. I think it's a very fair point. But it's not likely to show up in the short run, at least not without severe further declines in equity markets. Wealth effects take years to manifest. People don't change their spending in response to to daily swings in the stock market. And equity valuations are still up a lot over a multi-year time frame. Equity markets do matter to the real economy. You're exactly right. The tail can wag the dog. But I think we're a long way from seeing that kind of volatility required to get that outcome. Well, hopefully we won't test that theory. Thanks for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read about our analysis of interest rates and the economy in How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Higher Rates, and about the links between interest rates and the recent equity market volatility in Proceed with Caution, both on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flipside. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/ib.